you know how, um, you know, when you would hear that Wesley and Whitfield and all those people preached to thousands and thousands and you wonder how in the world they used to do it? Uh, well, you would find it and um, you, would, you found out pretty quickly because people would write in their diaries things like, my dad was a shouter for Whitfield, or my dad was a shouter. So what they would do is they would have people strategically placed in the crowds to the point where no one could hear, but, and they would shout it back, and then the next person would shout it back. It's, a, uh, it's no wonder that uh, Wesley especially wrote out all of his sermons, uh, just in case anybody questioned uh, what might have been said as things got lost through the Coconut Telegraph. So, um, but... Um, Anyway, those uh, in some ways older ways are simpler ways. Okay. I just need the sound. It's just not working. It's very strange. You want technology? No, just, uh, just sound. sound, yeah. Okay, so while Gil is up here praying uh, for us, uh, let us pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, that we would see you, and Lord, that uh, you would reveal yourself in spite of any hiccups, Lord, because we know that your word cannot be thwarted. Uh, but goes out and accomplishes that which it was purposed to do. So we entrust uh, our time with you, uh, to you, uh, knowing uh, that you will speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Last week, we did kind of a very whirlwind tour of the first great heresy in the church. And you remember it was with the Judaizers who uh, were uh, Jewish Christians who were telling uh, Gentile Christians, now that you're a Christian... You have to follow all the Jewish dietary laws. You have to um, be circumcised. Uh, you have to follow all of our customs uh, and the like. And, of course, Paul and uh, Barnabas and others um, said, no, 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 that's, uh, that's, that's not it. Now, um, they go up to Jerusalem, uh, and again, it wasn't in their minds a foregone conclusion of what was going to happen. Uh, but God moved and uh, revealed Himself uh, so that it was with uh, very little acrimony uh, that we know of. And uh, what happened was the church said, no, Gentile Christians are inheritors of grace in the same way that we are, and so uh, they don't need to be circumcised. Uh, they don't need uh, to follow uh, the dietary laws. However, there is a witness implication uh, that... Um, uh, that should be taken note of. And so I think it's very interesting that even though uh, when they wrote the letter, they said, here are the things you ought to avoid, though. And even though Paul was the most ardent proponent of a gospel witness ministry and not adding anything to the gospel, when he brought young Timothy on board, what did he do? Very first thing he did, he had him circumcised. Now, doesn't that sound like Paul is contradicting himself? Well, certainly not. Because on the one hand, as Paul says elsewhere, it's not about being circumcised or not about being circumcised. The kingdom of heaven is not about eating or drinking, and yet there are times in which you are going to have to be all things to all men in order that you might reach some. And as Martin Luther said, uh, the Lord is uh, free from the authority of all, but at the same time, He is under the duty and control of all, meaning that there are those things that we ought to avoid to make sure that a stumbling block to the gospel is not placed in somebody's path. And so to have Timothy circumcised meant that they could go into Jewish communities and there would not be an initial objection, uh, which it would be because many of them would have a very difficult time listening to Tiff Timothy, uh, finding out that he wasn't 
uh, circumcised. Now, how they would find that out, I do not know. Uh, but Paul thought, better safe than sorry. Yes, David. Yeah, they weren't. And when they were going into the synagogue, it, it may not have been, you know, that was not something that was required. In fact, we're going to talk about that. Um, we're going to talk about Jesus' baptism in a minute. So, uh, but, you know, you're, you're living in close, close quarters with people. It was entirely likely that somebody would see whether he was circumcised or not. And so to not cause uh, a scandal, um, they went ahead and had him circumcised. In addition to that, I mean, you see that especially in the... <clears throat> the debate over meat sacrificed to idols. Remember that these uh, meat was being, or these animals were being sacrificed to Greek, <coughs> excuse me, and Roman deities. And a lot of the Gentile Christians had no problem eating that meat. Uh, it was not a big deal to them because they knew that the gods that, tho that those animals were being sacrificed to were no gods at all, being sacrificed to nothing. Uh, but especially somebody from a Jewish background that would be very difficult to handle. Uh, I almost said swallow, but that would be a terrible pun. Uh, that would be a very difficult issue for them to grapple with. And so what Paul says is consider the weaker brother and the stronger brother, and that's really what it's about. That in fact, if this is going to put a stumbling block between you and your people, then, um, then you ought to think twice about it. This would be especially true in our world today. If you're a missionary to a Muslim country, you probably shouldn't haul out a six-pack and crack it open and be like, you want one, right? That's, that, would be, that would immediately put up a huge roadblock to the gospel uh, in uh, a Muslim country or even in our homes today. I mean, there are many people who struggle with alcoholism. And so if you have a close family member that deals with alcoholism, isn't due to your love and concern and care for them, doesn't that make you think twice about whether you might serve alcohol or at a meal or how uh, you might... Um, uh, display alcohol uh, in your home. And so um, <clears throat> it's really a not about eating and, and drinking. Uh, it, was, uh, it was more about um, whether or not these were issues that were essential, uh, these were gospel issues. And the Judaizers were saying that they were. And Paul was saying, no, they're not even though he saw that these could be pastoral issues that came up. But doctrinally, uh, that is not the case. And there goes my laptop. So I'm just kidding. So we're going to keep going. Actually, we don't need it till the end. So um, it's also very interesting that even though this nearly caused uh, the church to divide in two, and it still caused some problems because we see later on in Galatians, where Paul and Peter have a confrontation over this. So Peter understands the gospel principles, but he goes about and abstains from pork while eating with some people and not abstaining from pork with other people. And that's not because of missional issues, but because he's afraid of them. Because he's afraid of them. And he doesn't want to be thought less of or less holy. And Paul calls him on the carpet about that. Uh, and there were, would be people in the church that would continually uh, struggle with this issue. And this issue is still alive and well in the church today. Heresies never go away. They never go away. They just manifest themselves in different forms. And so uh, today, uh, you do have, uh, I think, uh, Judaizers uh, in the church that would say, 
It's not enough that Jesus uh, would die and be raised from the dead. You know, I think this is very impressive. You're doing this with one hand. Uh, one-handed. Um, no, it's, I, it's my fault. I, I, I'm drawing attention to it. Uh, that, uh, that we have people that say that Jesus' death and resurrection is not enough uh, to save the individual, but in fact what is needed is something in addition to that. Now, whether that's going to church, whether that's receiving communion, whether that's being baptized, whether that's behaving in a certain way, um, those things are alive and well in the church today. And even in my own life, uh, as a very young man when I was in my late teens, um, friends and I would pour over the Scriptures and wonder whether sexually immoral people would actually go to heaven. Is it really possible for Christians to be sexually immoral? Um, I think part of that had to do with my age, uh, but the other part was I was blinded to what the Scriptures had to say about that, that in fact Christians too uh, struggle in that area and have the same uh, frailty that the people in the world do. Uh, the difference would be contrition, which we can talk about later on. Uh, but again, getting into a relationship with God uh, is all about Jesus and not at all about us. And so this morning we're going to be talking about breaking up is hard to do. Is there anything that is worth breaking fellowship over? Now what's clear is when they go to Jerusalem is if there was a large segment in Jerusalem that said, no, you must keep the dietary laws and you must be circumcised, among other things, then the answer is yes. That you would have seen a separation immediately in the church, but God in His mercy and His grace uh, kept that from, being, from happening. Now, it is um, uh, remarkable that if you look later in chapter 15, uh, when Paul and Barnabas separate, listen to this, verse 36, and after some days Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with him John called Mark, but Paul thought it was best not to take them, take him, to, but Paul, I'm sorry, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement. So they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So right after the Jerusalem council, you have another sharp disagreement. And Paul and Barnabas part ways. But do they part ways as as if they're shaking the dust off their sandals, I, I, I want nothing to do with you. No, they were able to keep this disagreement in context and understand that this is not a church-separating issue, but it's probably a good idea for you to go your way and to honor what you believe the Lord is calling you to do, and for me to go my way and honor what I believe the Lord is calling me to do. There's no sense here that they didn't depart from one another as brothers. In fact, it says, Paul chose Silas and departed, having been what? Commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. Both of them, 
Paul and Barnabas, being commended to the grace of the Lord and seeing as co-workers for the sake of the gospel. And so there are certainly issues within the life of the church that we can differ on, and it may mean that there are times when we're going to have a hard time walking together, but overall we understand that we are part of the same church, capital C. So for instance, the issue of baptism. Um, within our own denominational life, we actually, I had to deal with an issue uh, in a different diocese where there was a young guy who was seeking ordination and uh, in the interview process said, but I, I, I can't get on board with infant baptism. I only believe in the baptism of believers. I kind of looked at him and said, well, that's going to be a problem for you in this church. Uh, because why? We practice infant baptism. Uh, he has every right to disagree with that, but what does that mean? Here is my good friend, you know, Bill Wilson, who's the pastor of the Baptist church around the corner, and you ought to go talk to him uh, because he can really help you out, and he's a, a solid believer and believes the same way that you do about uh, baptism. And that is what happened, but he went over to the Baptist and realized he believed in infant baptism and came back. We see it manifested in our Lenten preaching series where we have uh, this, just this upcoming uh, week, we have, uh, well, let's see what we've had. Last week we had an Episcopalian, a Presbyterian. Next week we have a Baptist, a Presbyterian, and a non-denominational guy, right? Now, certainly if we stayed up till 2 in the morning talking about uh, theology, we are going to find points of disagreement. But nobody is going to say of uh, Ken Jones or Ken Elzinga or uh, Tim Callum, uh, that they're not brothers in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? We just disagree on certain issues. And, uh, and certainly those issues uh, have been made primary issues in the past in the church, and that has caused uh, great difficulty. So what does it take, no, you're right, what does it take to get the sound to work? Just kidding. What? Thanks, Gil. That's above and beyond. Uh, what, does it, what does it take, or is separation ever biblically sanctioned? Well, I hate to say it, but uh, if you're sitting here this morning as an Anglican or a non-Roman Catholic, uh, by default, you've said yes. Uh, you've said that, that in fact, uh, there, is, there are things that are worth separating over. So let's take a quick look at the Reformation. At the beginning of the Reformation, when Luther nailed his 95 Theses to the door of Wittenberg Castle, he didn't do it thinking that he was making some sort of stand. He knew that he was saying some things that were controversial uh, because there was a preacher that was coming through Germany by the name of uh, John Tetzel, and, uh, and he was saying, look, if you just buy an indulgence, you can get out of, you can get out of hell. Buy your get-out-of-hell-free card. And not just that, your loved ones... If you want them to spend less time in purgatory, uh, just buy an indulgence. And, uh, and it was a big market. Uh, so much so, do you know that where, where the money from indulgences went to, what it built? St. Peter's Basilica. Right. Den of idols. Just kidding. Uh, it's beautiful and lovely, but somebody had to pay, uh, who was it, Leonardo da Vinci? Or was it Michael? Who was it? Michelangelo that did this, I saw the Charlton Heston movie, uh, that uh, doing the, uh, the Sistine Chapel. So the indulgence money went to pay for that. And um, Luther saw uh, this spiritual abuse going on and said, absolutely not. And he nailed his 95 theses. And, you know, uh, when have you all ever read them? 
I mean, I've read them once. I've read through them once. Uh, and, um, but, but normally we just know that that typically marks uh, the beginning of the Reformation. And by the way, if you ever want to go on a Reformation trip to Germany, there's one happening this summer, uh, July 20th through the 30th, with a group from the Advent. So Luther was trying desperately to hold it all together. He never, ever intended to start a new Christian denomination. That was never his aim. Luther was forced to separate from the Roman church system as the only way to advance a reform that would, and this is the important part, that would give room for the true gospel. He would only separate in order to give room for the true gospel. In fact, if you read any of Luther's early works, who are they dedicated to? The Pope, right, to the Pope. So Luther never saw himself as doing anything that was outside of the teachings uh, of the church and was, uh, uh, but they really went, uh, went after him. If you've ever seen the, um, not Ralph Fiennes, who's the other Fiennes? Joseph Fiennes, uh, the movie Luther, that's actually a very, uh, very good movie to give you an idea of what was going on uh, at the Reformation, even though it's very uh, abridged. And so, it got to the point where Luther realized that they couldn't coexist with one another. If he was going to honor the Lord and honor the Scriptures, he couldn't walk alongside uh, the Roman Catholic Church of that day. Now, it should also be noted that uh, Luther was forced out. Right? Luther was forced out. He was, he was cut off. He was excommunicated. Uh, and his teachings were put down by heresy. And such an impact, uh, his teachings had such an impact that the church called a general council, uh, called the Council of Trent, uh, to deal with the issues of the Reformation. And that initiated the Counter-Reformation. And uh, indeed, uh, the Council of Trent uh, is still is the, uh, was the last church council, I think, isn't it? That, that the, other than Vatican, the Vatican councils. Uh, but that was the last, uh, before Vatican I and II, uh, that was the last church council. So if you, um, every year I get a free copy of the Roman Catholic Catechism, uh, there's some guy somewhere uh, who sends me one, uh, uh, hoping that I'll read Mark and inwardly digest. And, and I do. I, I do read it, and I reference it uh, every once in a while just to make sure that I'm clear uh, about uh, an issue. And those uh, issues that we still disagree with our brothers and sisters in the Roman Catholic Church uh, are, um, uh, still exist. Uh, Trent is still in full effect uh, um, uh, for Roman Catholic uh, believers. And so <clears throat> when Luther realized he, uh, well, one, he gets kicked out. Two, his life was under threat. Uh, people were trying to kill him. And, uh, and that, that there was no platform for the gospel to do its work under that system, uh, they began uh, to walk apart. Now, in our own day and age, uh, let's fast forward especially in the life of our own church, our own denomination, our own neck of the woods in the Anglican Communion. In our own neck, one of the things that you see in the life of Luther and you see in the life of the book of Acts is that they were willing to sit down and talk with one another and, and have really hard, difficult conversations, knowing that at the end of it, it may indeed be about walking apart. 
but it may also be the means by which God uses to bring about reconciliation. And so uh, within the life of the early church, within the life of the church at the time of the Reformation, uh, and again, let me just as a footnote, what Luther was talking about at the time of the Reformation were not new ideas, uh, but were ideas that had been veiled by the church. To add is to subtract. And so, so many layers had been added onto it that it caused superstition. In fact, even to this day, thank you. So, uh, even, you know, I have some friends who, uh, who grew up uh, in that particular uh, body of the church, in the Roman Catholic Church, and um, I asked her once what her greatest fear was, and she said that I will forget to say the act of contrition before I go to sleep, because if I don't and I die in my sleep, I'll go to hell. Now, this girl was my age, grew up in the Roman Catholic Church. She grew up going to Roman Catholic schools. And, uh, and you know, I would even be willing to bet money that nobody told her that. Nobody said, if you do this, then this will happen, or if you don't do this, then this will happen. But somewhere along the way, because of all the additions, she got this idea in her head that that was indeed uh, the case. Uh, and so uh, these issues that Luther grappled with are still issues uh, today. And even amongst just your average Joe on the street, you ask him, you know, if you're, if you're going to go to heaven, if you're going to be in a relationship with God, uh, what does it take to be a really good person? Uh, I went into a doctor's office the other day, and the nurses in there have found out what I do for a living. And so let's just call this person uh, uh, Dr. Allison. Uh, but they said, um, can I ask you a question? And I said, sure. And they said, do you think Dr. Allison will go to heaven? And uh, I, I was hoping it was tongue-in-cheek. And they said, because we love Dr. Allison's wife, and we know she'll definitely get into heaven because she's the nicest person on the face of the earth. Uh, and, uh, and I just thought, well, good gracious. And I said, well, let me just tell you one thing. If, if being nice is what gets us into heaven, we're all doomed. Uh, we are all doomed. Uh, but what gets us into uh, eternity uh, with our Heavenly Father is through the grace and mercy, the shed blood and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, full stop. That's it. All right, and here was somebody, and I asked them where they went to church, and, and they said that they had grown up in the Baptist church. Uh, and so in that, there's a denomination that in, in, normally does put a very heavy emphasis on... Um, on uh, a relationship with Jesus, but somewhere along the way, um, our heart's wires are predisposed to do this and get crossed. Right? We're also always looking to add uh, to the gospel, uh, which is indeed uh, taking away. But in these things, in these things, even if somebody says to you, you got to do something other than believe in Jesus to get into heaven. Um, I read from John Newton last week, uh, if this person really is believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, we ought to have the patience and the love to sit down and talk with them, to sit down and talk with them. Now, um, that conversation may go nowhere, uh, but I will say that there's a great difference, and this is, again, true of our own denominational body. The whole idea of talking versus doing. Uh, so long as we are talking, we have fellowship as we try to discern what the Lord would have us do. However, once one party begins to act on their belief, there is no longer anything to talk about. And so you do have people, if, if they say, if they're sitting here saying, okay, 
Uh, you don't need to be circumcised uh, as a salvation issue, as a missional issue maybe, uh, but, but you don't have to for salvation, but continues to preach that as a salvific thing. Uh, that changes the conversation, doesn't it? Uh, because before you were talking about it, and now at least one party considers it just a foregone conclusion uh, that it's going to go their way. And even if it doesn't go their way, they're simply going to continue to move in the direction that they want to move in, which makes a mockery of the conversation in the first place. And so, at the very least, the conversation changes. At worst, it comes to an abrupt end, which is very sad. Uh, I as you know, I'm, um, uh, in a, I'm a big, staunch supporter of the Reformation, uh, but it's tinged with a great deal of sadness, isn't it? I mean, that it had to come to that where uh, Christianity split, and of course it had already split once before uh, in uh, the 11th century, uh, the East uh, and the West. And uh, I know that there were political considerations in both of those moments. Um, but that, any division in the body grieves the Lord Jesus. It just does. And, uh, and yet, because of that unity that we have in Jesus Christ, some of these issues are worth, are absolutely worth, um, saying we are unfortunately going to have to walk apart uh, for the time being. Now, I'm going to play for you a couple clips. I'm not picking on this individual preacher um, but, I, but I'm using him as an example. Um, I've actually spoken to him about this. He and I have talked about the issues that we're going to talk about today. Um, and, uh, and I told him that I was going uh, to use this in a Sunday school class, and he said that he had uh, no objection. Uh, and so uh, we're going to listen. I want you to listen to two things. Now, I'm going to tell you who it is, so if you want to go listen to the whole thing, you can, because I don't want you to think that I'm taking it out of... Uh, context. And so, uh, like Jesus' model in, uh, in Matthew 18, uh, the first thing I did was I approached him individually. There's a wonderful verse in Philippians chapter 4, verse 2, which is often lost. Uh, and this is Paul writing to the church in Philippi. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Right? These are two Christians that are having a disagreement. And what is Paul saying? You need to work mightily uh, to bring these two together. And so I want you to listen uh, to uh, this first clip to give you some background. This clergyman is preaching from the biblical text describing the baptism of, jo of Jesus. Remember, he steps down to the River Jordan. John baptizes him. The heavens open up. The Spirit descends like a dove. And they hear a voice from heaven proclaiming, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Okay? So that's where we are. The baptizer knew that John's baptism offered something that they could not access in the temple pool. And this is a saying hard to be heard one maybe even hard for us to access, given where we stand or sit today inside the established church. And may I be clear with you that in 33 years of ordination, 33 years of ordaining, like, I've never been clearer about the fact that we need to be really clear between us right. about which church we're talking about. Okay. We're talking about the institutional church, the church Just a minute. Of the we're talking about the church universal, the mystical body of Christ that Paul writes about as our first theologian. 
This is what I sound like on coffee. So, well, here we go. Which one are we talking about? Which church are we describing okay. here? I believe that when they looked at Jesus, they saw a man hungry to continue the journey of his own becoming into belovedness, son of man, son of God, that balance that we hear about through all four Gospels. That in that sense, Jesus, like the rest of us, was hungry to hear the words, you are my beloved, the one in whom I am well pleased. And that to access that, he could have gone to the temple and had a private experience. But he chose a community experience. A community experience of people longing to be the people of God, hungry for the knowledge that there was nothing they could do to get God. Okay. Um, Gil, would you mind queuing that up to uh, 4845? Thank you. Okay. Uh, so... What did you hear? What did you hear? Right. Yeah, so this is, uh, this is one of those issues, um, and I, again, I, I asked him for clarification on this. Uh, there was an early heresy in the church called adoptionism. What that heresy said was that Jesus was not the Messiah uh, until his baptism. That's when God anointed him. And here we have a preacher who has said that the reason why Jesus was baptized uh, was because he needed to be more aware of his belovedness, meaning what? That he is something less than divine. He's something less than divine. He's not, he's not fully God and fully man. Now, there is a, there is a, I preach on this a bunch of times, the truth of Jesus' baptism, and Deborah referenced it today, identifying with us as sinners. Uh, but uh, to say that in this moment, uh, what Jesus need, needed to hear in the midst of his unsurety and insecurity was uh, the Father to say, this is my beloved Son. Uh, was it said for him or was it said for the people around him? This is my beloved Son, not you are my beloved Son. It was said for the sake of those who were listening. Look to him. Look to him. I uh, engaged my friend in this conversation and I, I said, you know, I... Uh, if, if what you're getting at is our righteousness and our belovedness in, um, in Jesus, uh, and he said, no, it's not about Jesus. Uh, it's about simply by being born into the world, uh, simply by uh, being human, uh, we are beloved by God and we simply need to live into our belovedness. Uh, I simply pointed him to, uh, you know, saying, I, well, I think maybe if you looked at eight, Romans 8, chapter 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as children by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Uh, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If you're looking to get in touch with your belovedness, get in touch with Jesus and understand that you've been adopted by grace. And so uh, I, I said to my friend, you know, uh, this, this is an old one, uh, adoptionism, uh, and uh, if I would just challenge you 
uh, on whether or not that is the text that you want to use, because even if you're not trying to say it, you're saying it. Uh, and so you need to be aware of that. Okay, so we have 48, 45. You might think I'm being merciless to this guy, but I'm actually very, I'm a very nice person. Uh, 48, 45. Okay, there it goes. We need to publicly model our repentance from institutional narcissism. The institutional madness where we recruit people to bolster our budgets and our weekly attendance and total membership because those are the gauges we have on our dashboard. Where we really think it's all about us. And we use the language of missional theology and missional ministry to mask institutional anxiety about whether or not our church is still going to be around in 50 years, because who's going to bury me? I'm speaking plainly here today. People of God, it's okay. It's a household dinner time meeting here, right? Publicly model our repentance from institutional narcissism. The tendency to use people to support the church as institutions. I better keep going here. Number four, let our core leaders, our core leadership be selected and nurtured for their capacity to consistently companion our newest members into their belovedness. And finally, let us make it a practice to demonstrate the behaviors of people who know that we are all the beloved of God. The practices that demonstrate that we know we are the beloved of God. Now, my heart at this point, at this, at this stage in talking with you today, I, I'm really aware that this is a tall order. This is a lot. And that, frankly, the best science we have today says that what we used to think about formation is probably not true. We used to start with the head and then say, start, start living out what, you're, what you believe. And what we're realizing probably theologians and liturgical theologians have known forever is actually first you take on the behaviors and then your heart and your brain follow afterwards. So if you're interested in knowing more about that technology, Ermania Ibarra, one of the top 10 business thinkers in the United States last year, wrote a book, Act Like a Leader, Think Like a Leader. And her whole thesis is basically Leon Mitchell's Praying Shapes Believing. She's basically saying, no, actually, if you're inviting somebody into community and you want them to recognize their belovedness, somebody needs to put their arm over their shoulder and say, come be with me, let us practice what it's like to be beloved, and I know that your heart and your head are going to catch up after your body figures out what, it, what it's like to take on these behaviors. Can I? Okay, and then he says, can I get a witness? Okay, what did you hear there? Yeah, this is, uh, this is called Pelagianism. Uh, normally, it's very subtle in the life of the church, and that's why we call it semi-Pelagianism, which is very dangerous because it's, you can't really hear it. But when he said, um, just act like it, and eventually your head and your heart will catch up. Now, what does your human experience tell you? Your head and your heart cry out for, right? I wish that I could do this. 
My heart and my head say stop. My heart and my head say go. But unless there's an inward transformation, you're not going to see a change outwardly. And there may be a transformation, at least seemingly visibly, on the outside. But if you're not changed from the inside, then you're just faking it. Right? You're just faking it. So I, I, brought, um, I brought this up uh, to my friend and said, uh, you know, this is uh, the age-old heresy of Pelagianism. Uh, Pelagius was a, a, a monk in England uh, at the time of uh, Augustine in the 5th century. And uh, he and Augustine went hammer and tongs. And what Pelagian said, Pelagius said, was basically what was just said now, is that um, you have the ability to get your act together. You can actually get to a place where you won't sin. You can choose not to sin. And so just keep doing that and everything else will fall into line. You have the moral capacity in and of yourself to choose to live a holy life. Now, lest you think that I'm being crazy, uh, just two years ago at uh, the diocesan convention for one of our dioceses uh, um, put forward this resolution. Uh, the Committee of Discernment Concerning Pelagius resolved that this 105th Annual co Council of the Diocese of fill-in-the-blank recommend that the bishop appoint and oversee a committee of discernment to consider these matters as a mean to understand the contributions of Pelagius to our tradition. Uh, and be it further resolved that this committee report will bring their conclusions to the next annual council. That failed by less than 10 votes. Less than 10 votes. And so it's not that subtle anymore. In fact, we're now we're trying to rehabilitate uh, people who for centuries uh, have been considered heretics, and not just because we're simply in charge and we make the rules, uh, but heresy hurts people. It hurts people. One of the questions that I asked uh, my friend was, okay, well then let's talk about, because he said, our baptismal covenant is behavioral. And I said, what do you mean? Are you saying that baptism or any sacrament, baptism or the Lord's Supper, are they directed toward us? Are they from God to us? Or are, they, are we offering them up to God? And he said, well, both, but especially in baptism, it's definitely our responsibility. And I thought, well, that would stand in direct opposition to the traditions of the church for 2,000 years, that baptism and the Lord's Supper are manward. They're God's gifts from Him to us to communicate to us the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Luther said this, we are to sacrifice nothing else to God then trust and hope in Him. The forgiveness of sins and grace are greater than the whole world's act of worship. The best and most appropriate worship of God is to simply trust and believe. Full, spot, full stop. Full stop. Now, there are a number of other verses that I was going to bring up about how to handle conflict, uh, but what really discouraged me was I was at this sermon that was preached uh, and after it was preached, uh, 700 people stood in a standing ovation for this. Now, I believe that part of it was he told a very moving story 
uh, about an interaction that he had with a, um, a Mexican gang member who was gay. And uh, which I thought, well, here, here we go. Uh, and it was a very touching story about how he reached out and ministered to this guy who was in a gang and was struggling with his faith and didn't know where he fit into the church. And that was, that was great. I, I loved, that was, the, that was the good part of it. But that um, emotional experience, I think, overrode anybody's ability uh, to see that uh, what they had just been told actually was harmful, was actually harmful. And this was at our diocesan convention two weeks ago. And uh, as the room stood, uh, the only delegation that I know of that did not stand was the Advent. It wasn't because we were sticks in the mud or because we didn't like the guy. He's a very nice man. Tom Brackett is his name. Um, But these are serious issues. These are not in-house family disagreements. These are things... Uh, that put the spiritual lives of individuals in great peril. Uh, Forbid it, Lord, that we should boast in anything but the cross of Christ. Uh, Sir, that we might see Jesus, for we preach Christ and Him crucified. Uh, And apart from that, um, uh, we are uh, either peddling junk food, uh, or worse yet, uh, we're peddling poison. Uh, We're peddling poison. And so my conversation with this man was not to call him out on the carpet, uh, to not uh, kindle the stake uh, to burn him at, but in fact was to try to help him see um, that what he was saying uh, was very problematic and that because he has such a gift uh, in communicating and preaching uh, that there are those with itching ears who who will want to hear. And I kept coming back to 2 Timothy chapter 4, um, having the form of godliness, but denying its power. And, uh, and what I wanted to encourage him was to tap into the very power of God, um, to encourage him uh, to spend uh, time walking with the Lord Jesus uh, in the Scriptures. Uh, now, believe it or not, I do this kind of on a daily basis, but normally not at this level. Uh, normally, it's sort of a misunderstanding or, um, or someone's confused about something. Um, by the way, somebody emailed me not that long ago and asked me a question, and I haven't given up on it yet. I'm still, um, it was, um, if God knew that Adam and Eve were going to sin, why did uh, he uh, let them eat of the tree? Uh, so I'm going to kick that to y'all and uh, let you answer that. Um, it came up in sixth grade confirmation, which it always does. Um, And that's my favorite class of the year, by the way, when the sixth graders come in and ask me questions uh, because they're honest and they're willing to say, I have a hard time believing this. I don't understand, but I want to, but I want to. And so there you see we're having this conversation. Uh, I don't have children telling me uh, Jesus is not who he said he was uh, and, uh, and therefore we should just go along our merry way and get our acts together. All right, I know that it's, it's I'm going to leave a minute for questions and comments because what I've said I realize is pretty heavy. Thanks, Gil, for the... Sorry. About 500 years ago, uh, uh, the church was very harsh with heretics. And, uh, but now uh, you're... Your uh, conversation with this heretic was full of charity and right. friendship. And w- what's been responsible for that transformation, do you think? 
the attitude towards Yeah, I, I think because I know my own propensity to get it wrong, and I would pray that somebody would love me and have mercy on me and try to come alongside me and bring me back into the fold rather than just simply cutting me off. Um, now, if I was to persist, um, and if I got up in the pulpit, and this may have already happened, I pray that the Lord erases from your memories if this ever happens, but if I get up in the pulpit and I say something that is not of God, and I say it intentionally, um, I would hope that you would say, that's not right. Um, but if I continue to persist in it, and I'm not receptive to that, um, you should, if you have to, physically keep me from getting into that pulpit. Just don't shoot me. Just physically keep me from getting in the pulpit. It would appear that the whole idea of heresy and, and proper doctrine occurs rather de novo with Christianity's mm -hmm. beginning. And I have often wondered why. And, and it would appear that you've given us part of an answer today in that Christianity demands something more from us than the religions apparently that were prior. Right. And that therefore, how we approach and what we do in relation to God is the crux. Have I understood correctly what right. you said? Yeah, I, th I mean, one of the things that we have, uh, and I mean, this happens, I mean, other, other religions or philosophies are very permeable, so they're very loosey-goosey, and you can kind of do whatever floats your vote or find your lost remote. Like, that's fine. Um, but others are so incredibly rigid that if there's any disagreement, it's snuffed out. Islam would be the primary example of that, that they cannot, um, they cannot handle any disagreement or departure away from even I mean even between Shias and um, yeah I mean, Sunnis they're they're at each other's throats all the time, um, but Christianity has this dangerous idea that actually God the Holy Spirit is powerful enough when you open the Word of God to bring you to a place of truth, and so we're not afraid of disagreement, uh, but we have a supreme confidence in the Holy Spirit to lead us in the way that we're supposed to go. So in fact, I think that one of the blessings, if I can even say that, of heresy is that it causes us to clarify the truth. It causes us to have a reason for the hope that we have within us. So okay, so Pelagius doesn't know what he's talking about. So what? Well, here's the so what. Or, you know, the adoptionist or uh, whoever else uh, has come along, the Judaizers. Um, it, it forces the church to be much more clear about what it believes, and you can never assume anything. And if you see, like if you read the articles in the back of the prayer book, they're clear, but there's a lot of room. There's a lot of room for an understanding that there is disagreement on, on issues, but it, when it comes to uh, Jesus, there can't be. Uh, otherwise, uh, let's all just go to brunch. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Good question.